Amen. Thank you so much. Hallelujah. Thank you guys for, for welcoming me into your, your house and your, your church here. And, um, and I don't really feel like I'm out on the road. Um, in fact, the only way I could think, know that I was out on the road is I don't see my wife here. Um, but man, being here with you guys feels like home, feels like being with family. And uh, that's a real blessing to get that when, right. when you go out. And really what it does is it tes- it's the testimony of Jesus Christ and all you guys. Um, and how easy it is to see God in all of you. You know, it's not just that when you see Jesus, you see the Father. It's when I see all of you, I see the Father. And I just feel embraced by God when I'm with you guys. And so thank you so much for, for welcoming me into your home. Uh, Pastors Rick and Deanne, man, thank you guys so much for caring for my life. It's no small thing. You haven't just let me into your house, but you've treated me like I was a brother, like I was one of your children. Um, hallelujah. Like your friend. Um, man, you treated me like you treat Jesus. And so thank you so much. It's no small thing. I feel so comfortable with all you guys, and it's nice to come and just share Jesus with people. Um, I'm also happy to try to convince people of Jesus, but it's nice sometimes just to go share Jesus with the people that are already believing in Jesus. Right? And I don't want to develop some type of principle, but sometimes when you think you don't have to convince people, it pulls something out of you, right? Where you feel like, oh, I can just plop it out on these guys, right? I don't have to try to convince them. I can just let them have it and let them sort it out later. <laughs> Hallelujah. And that's always a, a, a wonderful thing. So, so thank you so much. Um, let me just get this thing open before I forget. Um, I'm kind of a wild man. My favorite superhero is the Incredible Hulk. Um, and so if, I try to keep the Hulk from coming out. I'm like David Banner. You know, David Banner, he never wanted the Hulk to come out because he always thought destruction was left in his path, you know. Um, so I, I'll try to keep the Hulk from coming out. But listen, man, sometimes the Hulk might manifest, right? And so if the Hulk comes out, just rest assured, something good will be left behind. But anyway, if I start flapping my arms um, and the mic gets away from my mouth, feel free, anybody, rebuke me, chastise me, tell me, put the mic back by your mouth, brother. And you guys sitting in the front, listen, I think you're far enough to where I won't spit on you, but you might get a mic in the the face, you know, because I'm, so just be ready to dodge, right? Because I get to swing in the arms and the mic might fly out of my, uh, my hand, glory to God. Um, technology. I was just sharing with uh, Sister Beulah here. Sometimes I think I was meant for the first century because dealing with all the technology, um, man, sometimes it feels laborious. Am I the only one? Do all you guys figured all technology out? I'm the only one. Man. (laughs) Sometimes I'm like, Lord, I have to do all these things just to preach? By the time I start to preach, I forget what I'm doing. Um, but yes, if you guys bear with me, eventually I will sort it out. And um, we will pray and get into the Word. And I'm excited about this Word. In fact, what I'm going to share tonight might be the most powerful thing I've ever seen in my life with God. Um, might be. And you could say that about a lot of different things. Um, but this, this really changed my life, and it changed my uh, experiential knowledge of the love of God. You know, the scriptures talk about having an experiential knowledge, right? Because you, you, you can tell somebody God loves them, and yeah, yeah, I know, God loves me, right? Immediately, you know, no, no, they don't know. They don't really know. And so there's like, I know God loves me because that makes sense in my head. But then there's an experiential knowledge, an experiential knowing of the love of God, where like, you know God loves you because you felt it in the deepest part of your being, right? You felt it deep down in your soul. Um, And what I want to share tonight, I I think that's that's caused me to to know the love of God um, more than maybe anything I've ever seen about about God. Uh, So we're just going to share that tonight, um, and we'll just... We'll just pray real quick. Father, let your heart be laid bare in our midst tonight so that we might know the height and the width and the depth 
and the breadth of your love for us. Father, our desire is that our lives be rooted and grounded in your love for us, that every day that we walk in this earth, that we have an experiential knowing of your loving embrace, that every day as we walk in this earth, we feel your warm embrace, that we know that with every breath we breathe in, that we are breathing in your life. And with every breath that we breathe out, we are breathing out your name. Thank you, Father, for being here with us. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, that your Holy Spirit guide us into the truth that Jesus revealed about your love for us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 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 So tonight we, we want to plop the heart of God out on the table. It's right here in our midst. And um, that's what God wants, is for his heart to be plopped out on the table. We can think God wants so many things, right? And when, most of the time when we think about those kinds of things, we have God as like the great and powerful Oz. Like he's very stoic and mechanical, right? And the will of God. And always normally the things we've been taught is about the will of God is about something that, that he wants us to do right? Or how he wants us to get it right, right? Or if more than anything, he just wishes we could be good boys and girls. If these guys could just behave right, then God could be happy, right? And we think about that. But you know what God wants? God wants to be known. He wants to be known. He knows and he wants to be known, right? And really, that's what we want. And you know why we want that? It's because we're the image of God. And the fact that we want that is just the evidence that we come from God. We want more than anything to be known, right? And when I say be known, we want someone, we want people to be able to look into the deepest part of our being, and we want them to smile when they look in there. We want them to feel like it's good when they look in there. We want them to look in there into the deepest part of our being and to know the depth of who and what we are and for them to feel happy about it. And then we want to know someone else like that too. We want to be able to see into their being, into the deepest depth of their being, and feel that same thing. Well, that's God. That's what God wants. He wants to know and be known, right? And so that's really what the gospel is. The gospel is the laying bare or the making bare of the heart of God in the midst of mankind. That's what it is. That's actually what the gospel is. And I promise you this, you see into the depth of God's heart and you'll be healed. You'll be healed from everything. Everything that you think could ail your life, all the different things that you think about in your head that you need to do, that you need to figure out so you can fix your life, so things can go right, so you can feel good, so you can feel like you're right. All of those things would all be made straight if you just see into the heart of God, right? I mean, Jesus says this is eternal life, that you know the one true God. He's not just talking about knowing that God exists. What he's talking about is that you'd see into the depth of his heart, into the depth of his being. And he's saying, what you will see when you look into there will be unto you eternal life. Hallelujah. (laughs) Hallelujah. Um, Even just that will make you happy. See, this is, I guess, Brother Rick, what if I knock this water over on accident onto the floor? Okay. Because I think it will be a problem for me unscrewing with one hand and and trying to do this. So the gospel is God bearing his soul in our midst. That's what it's about. That's what the preaching of the word is. That's why the word was made flesh. And so we're going to take from Romans chapter 5, and we'll look in verse 6, 7, and 8. This is the Apostle Paul, and these are famous verses that we all know. And these are verses I read my whole life, probably since I was like five years old. Um. For when we were, and I'm going to read from the King James. I know we all have our translations, but I read from the King James. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. For a good man, some would even dare to die. (laughs) But God commends his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the Apostle Paul says that God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were godly, not when we were good boys and girls, not when we were obeying, not when we were living right, when we were sinners and ungodly, when we were as fallen away and as backslidden and as lost as we could be, Christ died for us. 
And so God's thinking, these guys need to get a glimpse of the love that I have for them. They need to understand the depth of this love. So we're going to demonstrate our love for them when they're in the midst of the thing they think is the worst thing that could ever be true about them, when they have the worst behavior there could ever be, when they're the worst sinners that they could ever be. We're going to blow up the idea that we don't love them. And the way we're going to blow it up is we're going to show up in the midst of their hatred, in the midst of their envy, in the midst of their gossiping, in the midst of their backbiting, in the midst of all the evil that's manifesting in them. And we're going to show up and we're going to die for them. (laughs) Oh, glory to God. That's what we're going to do. He says, that's how it's going to happen. So Paul says, man, we can really, it's like John, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Paul says, man, we can see the manner of love that God is feeling for us in that when we set ourselves up as his enemies, God never was the enemy of man. We set up ourselves as his enemy. When we set ourselves up as his enemy, Christ laid down his life for us. Now, that was always a strange thing for me when I read that when I was a young guy. Because it says that God demonstrates his love. And then it says Christ died for me. And I thought, well, that was easy for me to see, oh, Jesus loves me. And I didn't realize this, but my theology and my doctrine kind of left me in the place where I kind of struggled to see that the Father loved me. Because here it is, Jesus laying down his life for me. Jesus died for me. And in nursery, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. I grew up singing those songs. Yeah, but there was a disconnect in my heart because how is Jesus dying for me the demonstration that God loves me? And I didn't realize what kind of problem that was causing in me. And I didn't realize what kind of problem that was causing in my relationship with God. So I, could, I read those verses and I could see, I could see how Jesus loves me. But how, how, is that, how does Christ laying down his life for me, how does that demonstrate that God loves me? How does that demonstrate that God loves me? And these are questions that I asked inside of myself. And these are questions that I pose to the Father. And I encourage all you guys, when your questions come up in your heart about God, listen, man, God wants to talk to you about those questions. Because at the end of those questions coming out, and you coming to God with those questions, is a massive revelation of who He is and what He feels for you. And so I encourage you to talk with God about the questions that you have, no matter what they are, even if you think they sound rude towards God. I used to tell God things that weren't nice. (laughs) Because I've spent some time frustrated with God and with life. And so bring those things out to God. So how does Christ dying for me show me that God loves me? How is Jesus showing me that God loves me? Well, John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you keep reading in John chapter 1, it goes on to say, And the Word was made flesh. And it goes on to say that the reason why the Word was made flesh was to declare the Father. The Word was made flesh so we could know the Father, the Word that is God. In John chapter 1, that's speaking of Jesus when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. And that Word was made flesh to declare the Father, that the Father's heart might be made bare in the midst of mankind. It says Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. It says that David was a man after God's own heart. Do you know why it says David was a man after God's own heart? Because it means he'd seen into the heart of God. Well, John comes and says, Jesus is the fulfillment of what David was prophesying of. Jesus is the man that's been in God's heart. Not only that, it's not just that he's been in there and looked around. He is the Father's heart. He is the Father's heart. (laughs) Hallelujah. So Jesus is the word about God made flesh. He is the Father's heart laid bare for all of us to see. John 17, if you keep reading in John's gospel, John 17 says, the Father, Jesus says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. John chapter 12, this is amazing. I don't know if you guys realize it, but we've worshipped a historical Jesus. We've worshipped the man Jesus and not realized that it's through Jesus we do worship God. And we've lost sight of this. But Jesus said he didn't come to speak of himself. Well, who did he come to speak of then? The Father. 
And he goes on to say, even as the Father has given me commandment. Do you want to know the commandment Jesus came preaching? It wasn't thou shouts and thou shalt nots. The commandment he came preaching was the word about who the Father was. And he says, in this commandment is life everlasting. This word about the Father that the Father has given to me to share, it will be unto life everlasting for all those who can hear it. Right? And so Jesus says, I didn't come to speak of myself. I came to speak of the Father. I came to speak of the Father. Jesus says in John 14, when Philip is like, listen, man, show us the Father and that will suffice. Can you imagine Jesus walking with these guys for three years? I mean, he's the Lord of glory, but can he? I mean, if he is the Father and he's the Word made flesh and he's been walking with these guys for three years and Philip says, show us the Father and, and that will suffice us. We'll be happy. And what does Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He goes on to say in, in John chapter 5, I only do what I see the Father doing. Do you guys see a theme developing there? You see what Jesus is trying to say about who he is and what he is? You see the picture he's drawing there? The picture he's bringing together? Isaiah says, a child will be given unto you. A son will be born unto you. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God. This is what it says about Jesus. Isaiah's talking about Jesus. Isaiah says Jesus is going to be born as a child into the earth to be given to us, and they're going to call that person Jesus that was born into the earth Everlasting Father. And Isaiah just described the Godhead there. Who do you think Wonderful Counselor is? Holy Spirit. Who's Prince of Peace? Son. Everlasting Father. Mighty God. That's what it says about Jesus. Mighty God. Man, I grew up my whole life in my mind knowing that Jesus is God. If somebody would have told me Jesus was God, I would have said amen. I would have said amen, but I didn't realize that as my theology kept going, there's many instances in my theology where what I believed about the things that happened, I wasn't thinking on Jesus like he was God. I wasn't looking at it as if he was God. You guys might already know these things. I come in here and there's so much love here, maybe you guys should teach me. But I don't think we're teaching. I think we're just talking about a truth here. Hebrews 1 says... God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past to us unto the fathers by the prophets, has spoken to us in these last days by his son. It goes on to say that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. It goes on to say that he is the express image of God. Do you know what the express image of God means? The total revelation of who and what God is. It means there's nothing to be seen or known about God outside of Jesus. That's what he's saying. This is the full picture of God. It is God. Mm -mm -mm. Jesus is God's doctrine. Jesus is God's doctrine. We all got our doctrine. We all like our doctrine, don't we? Well, listen, all of our doctrine is worthless, right? The only doctrine that's worth anything is the doctrine of God, which is Jesus. Jesus is God with us to explain God to us. Jesus is God entered into the earth, gathered us around a campfire to reason with us about what we believe about him and what we think is in his heart towards us. We gathered around the campfire right now. Who's got marshmallows? I just had a dear uh, friend, uh, some friends, Ray and Amy Vila, at, uh, in Slidell with us, and he shared a, a great word, and his little daughter was there, and she's roasting marshmallows, and she kept bringing me her marshmallows to eat. I found a little friend. She loved me, and I don't know why. I thought, hallelujah, man. My own nieces and nephews don't like me like this. But she flew back to San Antonio, and they said the next day she woke up, where's Mr. Greg? <laughs> Where's Mr. Greg? Where's Mr. Greg? Jesus is God with us to explain God to us. 
You see, we were carnal, sold under sin. And so God had been busy trying to tell us about who he was, but we couldn't see who he was. So you know what he said? I'm going to put on these people's skin suit, and I'm going to come and dwell with them and look them in the eye so they can look me in the eye. And in them being able to look me in the eye, they'll be able to touch me. They'll be able to see me. They'll be able to hold me. And they'll be able to feel me doing that with them. And then they'll be able to really know God. Amen. Right? So listen, like I said, if somebody would have said to me, Jesus is God. Amen. Amen. We all say Jesus is God. We say Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. And we're all hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Right? Nobody disagrees with that. If we say, we all say, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And we all say amen. And we all agree with that. And everybody's thinking, what's the problem, Greg? Yes, we all agree with that. We all agree with those words when Jesus says, if you've seen me, we've seen the Father. You've seen the Father. We all agree that Jesus is Emmanuel. I didn't see anybody standing up and saying, no, it's not true. I don't know if you guys realize that I'm taking you down a... I'm taking you down a trail. <laughs> We're going somewhere. <laughs> take a little trip. Take a little trip and see. <laughs> take a little trip. Take a little trip with me. <laughs> if you're thinking something's wrong on the inside with me, you're right. But listen, if I'm wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> we all say amen when it's said that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We all say amen. And maybe it's just me. And so maybe I needed salvation and you guys are just like my support group so I can get these things off my chest and I can come to the revelation of the truth, right? But something happens when we think of the cross. I don't know if you guys realize that. Something happens when, when we get to the cross. We get to the cross and all of a sudden, Jesus is only a man. All of a sudden... He's not God, especially in our theology, especially in the theology in the church. I know for me, I would have said amen to all that. But when I thought of the cross, I, that, that Jesus the man. All of a sudden, Jesus ain't God no more. All of a sudden, I can't see God there. All of a sudden, when I got to the cross, somehow Jesus is no longer Emmanuel. Somehow I would get to the cross and that was no longer God with me. All of a sudden, it was no longer God with us at the cross. It was just a man, Jesus. And then we, did the whole, we described this man in horrible ways. And we really stripped the power of the gospel there. Listen, guys, there's never a time when Jesus is not the Word made flesh. There's never a time when Jesus is not Emmanuel. There's never a time when He is not God with us. There's never a time where He isn't Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. There's never a time. He's Everlasting Father on the cross. Amen. And I'm sorry to become the Hulk, but I can feel the burning in God's bones. And that's God with us on the cross, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our anger, of our hatred, of our bitterness, of our sin, of all of the anger and hatred we had in our hearts that came out of us towards Him. That's God. That's God. Yes, Jesus is a man. But he's also the word. And he's the word made flesh, guys. And the cross is one of the pillars of the word made flesh. And we come and describe it as if it isn't. And the way we've expressed the cross completely removes the father from being there. He isn't even there anymore. And the whole point is that's everlasting father. The whole point is for us to see how everlasting father will be with us when we nail him to a tree. That's the whole point. And then we remove him. Oh, man. The cross is one of the pillars of God with us, explaining himself to us, because we don't know him at all when we're in our darkness. And it's him coming and dwelling with us in our darkness to reason with us about who and what he is. That's the whole point, man. It's the whole point of what's going down there. Man, much of what we've been taught about the cross and the doctrine we've been taught at the cross is if somehow on the cross, the Father and the Son aren't one. 
But Jesus said in John 16, the day is coming, speaking of the cross, well, everyone will scatter from me and it will look like I'm alone, but I won't be alone because the Father will be in me and I will be him and I am the Father. Listen, guys, this might mess you up and you don't have to believe me, but on the last day, you'll elbow me and say, you were right. When the last day comes and we see the Father face to face, we're going to see Jesus. And we're going to be his Eve. And we're going to hear the Father say to us, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. (laughs) They have come forth from me. You're God's Eve. You're God's Eve. Yes, Adam and Eve are real people. But that story in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve is trying to tell us something about God and us. Trying to tell us something about God and us. You are God's Eve. I promise you that. I promise you that. Listen, if Jesus isn't God on the cross, who is he? Somebody please tell me who he is if he isn't God. Because that's what God asked, said to me. And I thought I could come up with their answer. And I couldn't. If that's not God on the cross, who is it? Thanks, brother. We needed to repeat that. Jesus isn't the word on the cross. Where's the word? Somebody please tell me. Where is he? Is he under a rock somewhere hiding? Who's holding everything together if Jesus isn't the word? I'll tell you what, Jesus is the word. In fact, he is God, that which created all things, that which with nothing exists that exists. It's the word that created everything entering into the death of its creation to hold it all together again. He's entering back into it to hold it together again. You know, when they crucified Jesus on the cross, they had a plaque over his head. And the different Gospels describe it a different way. Some of you that listen to me heard me say this before. I just think it it drives the the point home. But the plaque that was over his head, um, let me just get it right, because it says something different in the other Gospels with different languages, because it read all the languages on the cross. It wrote in different languages so everybody could read it. But in John's Gospel, it says, on the plaque over his head on the cross, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And the way it was written was in an acrostic style where the, letter, the words were on top of each other going down. And acrostic writing was a, a significant way of writing in the Hebrew culture and in the Jewish culture. And so remember in that account, remember, what the, remember how the Pharisees freaked out when they read that? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. They didn't just freak out because it said Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. They were looking at what it was said there acrostically. And do you know what it spelled out acrostically in Hebrew? Yud, Hav, Vav, Hey. That's the name of God. We say Yahweh or Jehovah, but that's not how God's name is actually spelled. We struggle to say God's name because it's only consonants. And so we add in vowels so we can say it. And we say Yahweh or we say Jehovah. But the name of God is spelled H or Y-H-V-H. In the Hebrew language, Yud, Hav, Vav, Hey. And so when they saw it written up there, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, you know what they saw on the, over the plaque of this guy that they said was the worst sinner that had ever lived? They saw Yahweh. Yes. Change it. Change it. Yes. Say, he said. Yes. Just add that in the beginning. It'll change the whole meaning. Pilate says, I said what I said. Yes. It says what it says. Do you know why? Because that is God. And when something interesting about the Hebrew alphabet is each Hebrew letter has a picture meaning that goes along with each Hebrew letter has a picture meaning that goes along with it. So they have meanings of the letters with pictures and they develop meanings of words with those pictures. You know what the letter Yud is in Hebrew? An open hand, an open hand. The first letter of God's name is an open hand. You know what the second letter is? Hey. Do you know what the Hebrew uh, scholars say? We're not exactly sure the different ways to describe that, but that's the letter for grace. 
hey. And in fact, when you look at that letter, hey, it's the letter that God added to Abraham and Sarah's name. When Abram was just Abram and Sarah was just Sarai and God was going to make them exceedingly fruitful and he added the letter of grace to their name because it would be by his grace that they would be exceedingly fruitful. It'd be by his grace that the deadness in their bodies would be overcome and God would bring forth fruit in them. So you have open hand of grace. You know what the third letter is? Yud, yud, hey, vav, vav, sorry, vav. The third letter, vav, you know what it is? A nail. A nail. A nail. What did Jesus say when he saw the disciples? He pulled out his hands. Peace be with you. <laughs> That's God. The last letter, hey. Grace. Do you know what that says in the pictures? Open hand of grace nailed in grace. <laughs> That's what's over the head of Jesus when he's nailed to the cross. <laughs> That's God. Listen, this will mess you up. That's God. There's God. You guys ever heard of the Nicene Council? You know why they met for the Nicene Council? There's a guy named Arius. And Arius began teaching that Jesus was not God. <laughs> he began teaching that Jesus was a created being. That he has a beginning. And he had an end. That's what Arius began teaching. And all of the early church fathers said, that's blasphemy. Amen. And so the Nicene Council met to consider this thought. Whether or not Jesus is really God. Well, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Amen. <laughs> and they all fell over. <laughs> and they all fell over. And so it was decided in the Nineteen Council that it was heresy to say that Jesus wasn't God. And that's why they issued that statement. They issued a long statement because Arius said, Jesus is not the self-same substance of the Father. He is not the one with the Father. He's a created being. He's made of a different substance. He has a beginning and he has an end. And that's why the Nicene Council issues a statement that says he's of the self-same substance of the Father. Because they decided that it was heresy to say that Jesus wasn't God. Well, listen, guys, the way that we've been taught in our Western theology, in our Western culture, in the modern church world about Jesus on the cross, it's been taught as if Jesus wasn't God. And in fact, it's been taught as if Jesus aban God abandoned Jesus. We've completely removed God from the cross, which is the power of, for him to demonstrate his love towards us. It's heresy. Now, I'm not trying to condemn us, but I want to condemn that doctrine. Any doctrine that says anything other than Jesus is God is heresy. It's just not true. You guys with me? Am I boring you? The Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to mess people up. The Sermon on the Mount is the most grace-filled message that's ever been preached. Ever. I mean, John said Jesus came full of grace and truth. <laughs> if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you can't see that it's only grace, it just means you don't understand what's written there. And you probably had help misunderstanding it by well-intentioned teachers. <laughs> We've had a lot of help misunderstanding what's written there by people that mean well, but by people that don't understand. Right? And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes and says, unless your righteousness, unless the righteousness you're seeking is greater than the righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees are seeking, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And when he talks about righteousness there, he's talking about strength or ability. And so the Pharisees and the scribes were seeking a certain ability to inherit the kingdom of God. They had their eyes set on human ability to inherit the kingdom of God. And so Jesus comes and says, unless you seek a strength, unless you seek an ability that is greater than human ability, that is greater than the ability and the strength that the scribes and Pharisees are seeking, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Right. Now whose righteousness is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees? Whose righteousness is greater than human ability? Whose ability is greater than human ability? Whose strength is greater than human strength? Jesus is talking about God. Amen. 
That's the righteousness he's pointing to. And he's saying the scribes and the Pharisees are seeking human ability to inherit the kingdom of God. But they'll never be able to inherit the kingdom of God by human ability. The only strength there is that can give you the kingdom of God is the very strength of God. The very goodness in God's heart is the only thing that can give you the kingdom. It's the only thing. And so when we think of the kingdom of God, guys, we have the first fruits of the kingdom of now. Righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. But when you want to get real clear cut about what it is to inherit the kingdom, Jesus teaches it in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. When you think of the kingdom of God, think of sin and death being overcome in your flesh. Think of this body that you have, you see growing up. I mean, I used to have hair. I don't have hair no more. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, I can look in the mirror and see that I've grown older, right? Like, I can look in the mirror and see, oh, well, I'm not as strong as I once was. When you think of inheriting the kingdom of God, thinking, think of sin and death being eradicated from your body, completely removed. Think of your body being clothed in immortality when you think of inheriting the kingdom of God. That's what you want to think about when you think about that. And so you ought to ask yourself, whose righteousness can do that? Whose righteousness can remove sin and death from your body? never to come back ever again. Whose righteousness can remove death from the earth? Whose righteousness can consume death to the degree that there's no death anywhere anymore and it can never come back? Whose righteousness can do that? Do any of you think that you can eradicate sin and death from your body by loving your enemy? Do you really think if you love your enemy today that you can remove death from the earth? Do you really think by turning your other cheek? that you're going to find yourself clothed in immortality? Do any of us really think we can overcome the grave by if someone steals our coat, if we run back into the house and get them our cloak and give it to them? Do any of us think we can come out of the grave by doing those things? That's real clear cut, isn't it? Yet somehow we read the Sermon on the Mount and we think Jesus is telling us we got to do those things. I will tell you this, when you see the heart of the Father and you see into it clearly, you'll find, since, his, since he's father, you'll find him giving birth to himself in you. And you'll find his life manifested in you. And just like Paul talked about us being slaves to sin, you become a slave to the life of God. There's a reason why Paul uses the word slave. It means you don't have control over it, right? The life of God will captivate you. It will take you captive and bring forth its fruit in you. So in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus isn't trying to teach you about how you need to act better. He's not giving you a list of rules to perform so that you can inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is trying to point you to the one who can give you the kingdom of God as a gift. That's why it says inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. That's why he says that. Do you know what, the, you know what meekness means? Remember, Jesus said in Matthew, learn from my doctrine, for I am meek and I am lowly. Do you know what meek means in the Hebrew and the Greek? It means to think little of your ability. It means to look at your own ability and say, my ability is dung. And it means to make much of God's ability. That's what it means to be meek. Jesus was the meek on the cross. (laughs) Oh, man. Meekness means to think much of God's ability to serve you with the kingdom as a gift. You You can only inherit something by someone giving it to you as a gift. He starts the whole dissertation by talking about you inheriting the earth. If you got to turn the other cheek to inherit the earth, then it's not a gift. And it's not a promise. And if it's based on you doing those things, then you've made void the promise. And so Jesus comes as God with us to reason with us. He wants us to inherit the kingdom. We have an inheritance stored up for ourselves in God. In fact, our inheritance is God himself, his life. And not just part of his life, it's all of God and all of God's life. That's our inheritance. And Jesus wants us to inherit it. But he sees that we're trying to attain to it by human ability, by our ability to turn the other cheek, by our ability to love our enemies. And he says, listen, man, your human ability can never attain to the kingdom because your human ability can never overcome sin and death in the flesh. 
You can spend every day the rest of your life turning the other cheek, and I promise you, your body's still dying. You ain't coming out of the grave by loving your enemy. If we could come out of the grave by loving our enemy, then Jesus died in vain. So the Pharisees made much of their ability, and they were trying to earn the gift by their own ability. And Jesus comes and says, unless you're looking to ability greater than a human ability, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is doing on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's trying to point people to God's righteousness towards them to give them the kingdom as a gift. And remember, Jesus says the least in the kingdom, they will teach things and they won't demonstrate them. Jesus says the greatest in the kingdom will teach these things and demonstrate them. You know what least and greatest is in the Hebrew culture? He's talking about rabbis. And what he says, the greatest in the kingdom, he's talking about the one you should listen to, the one whose doctrine is true. So Jesus come as God doctrine and he talks about uh, seek a righteousness that turns the other cheek. Seek a righteousness that loves your enemies. Seek a righteousness that blesses those that curse you. Seek a righteousness that when someone uh, despitefully uses them, they pray for them. Seek a righteousness that when somebody strips them naked and steals their coat, they run and get a cloak to give it to them. So Jesus taught the way to inherit the kingdom of God, and he's God with us, explaining God to us. And then as God on the cross, what did Jesus do? Didn't Jesus turn the other cheek? Didn't he turn the other cheek on the cross? That's Jesus. That's God. Jesus is God on the cross turning the other cheek. Jesus is God on the cross. When we cursed him, he blessed us. When we despitefully used Jesus, didn't he pray for us? When we, you know, Jesus was stripped naked when he was nailed to the cross. When we stripped him naked and stole his coat, didn't Jesus go into heaven to get us the robe of his life? That's God. That's God. That's the righteousness. God's the only one that can conquer sin and death in the flesh. He's the only one that can manifest immortality in the flesh. He's the only one who can do that. He's the only one who has life in himself. And do you know how he overcame our sin? Do you know how he took our sin into himself? Our sin manifested death in our bodies. And that death stung our hearts with fear. And that fear brought forth anger and hatred and vitriol and gossip and murder and envy and gossiping and backbiting. And Jesus came into the earth and as God. And you know, he only came into the earth to be good to us. It says Jesus went around only doing good and healing everyone that was sick. He didn't come into the earth to punish us. He's God come to us to heal us to save us, to exalt us, to deliver us, to make a place for us to dwell with him in his house for all time. Jesus came as the good Samaritan. We were beaten and bloodied and left for dead on the side of the road by the thief. And then here comes God. He's the good Samaritan. He just come into the earth to pick us up and to fill us with the wine of his life and to make a place for us to dwell with him for all time. But we were so filled with anger in hatred, in vitriol, because of the sin that had taken us captive. And when God came to be good to us, we stripped him naked and nailed him to a tree. Mankind. Mankind did. (laughs) So when Jesus says, Love your enemies in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. He's describing the Father's righteousness towards us. He's describing His righteousness towards us. That's why if you keep reading in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's describing the Father. 
If you keep reading in the Sermon on the Mount, and we, listen, guys, we chop up verses and we don't read the verses in context. If you keep reading the Sermon on the Mount, you get to Matthew 6.33, and we quote this verse all the days of our lives. And what does it say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and whose righteousness? His. Do you see what he says there? If you want the kingdom, if you want to seek the kingdom, then seek God's righteousness towards you. Seek that he, when you smite him across one side of the cheek, he'll turn and give you the other one. Seek him because when you curse him, he'll bless you. Seek him because when you despitefully use him and nail him to a tree, he'll pray for you. Seek him because when you strip him naked and you steal his coat, he's going into the heavens to get the robe of his life to clothe you in it. So in Jesus, that's God. We see God on the cross turning the other cheek. If you've seen Jesus on the cross turning the other cheek, you've seen the Father turning the other cheek. If you see Jesus, if you see Jesus on the cross blessing those who were cursing him, you've seen the Father on the cross blessing those who were cursing him. If you've seen Jesus stripped naked and gone into heaven to get the robe of his life, you've seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. (laughs) I mean, don't we see Jesus praying for those when they despitefully used him? We're supposed to see the Father's faithfulness to us when we're unfaithful. That's what we're supposed to see on the cross. And Jesus came to demonstrate that. When we were unfaithful, when we were ungodly, when we were filled with hatred and murder and envy and gossiping and backbiting. We're supposed to see the Father's faithfulness to us. We're supposed to see that the Father, in the face of our great sin, could not deny the love he felt in his heart for us. That's what we're supposed to see. Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'm telling you about a righteousness that can save you from death. Let me describe what that looks like to you. It looks like a guy turning the other cheek when you smack him. Oh, and by the way, the guy I'm talking about, it's God. It's God. God loved us when we set ourselves up as his enemy. And so there's God. He only come to be good to us. He didn't come asking for anything from us. God who has everything and doesn't need anything, the scripture says. God whose throne is the heaven and the earth is his footstool. God who Paul says in Acts 17 doesn't need anything from man and doesn't need man to worship him with the work, their own works. This God, this God came to bless us, to heal us, to deliver us. And we were so filled with anger and hatred and vitriol and bitterness that we were blind and we were in our confusion and we couldn't see it and we nailed him to a cross. We took all of our hatred and anger out on him. Now listen, I don't know if you guys are like me, but somebody come to nail me to a cross, we're going to have problems. Listen, I'm from New Orleans. And you know, what, you know what we said growing up? I'm from the murder cap of the world and we're rowdy, rowdy. You come and smack me outside one side of the cheek and I'm going to lay hands on you and ain't going to be to pray. <laughs> so I think we can all understand that. I mean, all of us have felt that thing inside of us when somebody does us wrong. What, what's wrong with them? But we, God came to heal us, only be good. He didn't even do us wrong. He came to be good to us and we nailed him to a tree. And while we're nailing him to a tree, he's more concerned about what's happening to us than what's happening to him. His heart is more worried about the hurt and the bitterness and the pain that's in us than the pain he's feeling in the body he put on. And do you know what he's saying to us while we're scapegoating him and nailing him to a tree? He's embracing us and falling on our neck just like the father of the prodigal son. And do you know what he's saying to us? I know. 
I know what sin is doing to you. I know the death that it stung you with. I know the fear that's in your heart because of it. I know you're confused. I know you're blind. I know you're filled with hatred. It's okay. I'm here with you. I'm wonderful counselor. I'm prince of peace. I'm everlasting father. I'm mighty God. And I am going to take all of your sin and all of your death into myself. All the griefs and the sorrow that are in you causing you to nail me to a tree. I'm going to turn the other cheek and I'm going to absorb all of it into my myself and I'm going to swallow it up from the inside out and I'm going to set you free from that which is filling you with hatred. You see, you start knowing that God and it breaks you down. It melts your heart. Doesn't it say that love covers a multitude of sins? How do you think he saved us from trusting in our own works for life? When we were evil to him, he didn't return evil for evil. He gave us good for the evil we gave him. And in doing that, it melted our hearts. How could he do that? How could he love us when we nailed him to a tree? If ever anyone deserved to die, it was us and it was then. But God was in Christ, not willing to impute our transgressions to us. We've made it a mechanical thing. Yes, God was in Christ, not willing to impute our transgressions to us. We've stripped the personhood and the emotion of God from that statement. Paul is saying God was in Christ. And when God thought about our death coming upon us, when God thought about the wages of sin, the death that was the reward of us trusting in our own works, when God thought about that coming on us, do you know what he did? He ripped his shirt open and he said, let it never be so. I can't stand the thought of my man dying. I'd rather take their death into myself than let them die. I know they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I know they earned death. I know they sinned. I know that they brought it upon themselves. I know all that, but I'd rather take their death into myself than let them die. This is the kind of love we're supposed to be busy with. And I promise you this, you can't get the knowledge of this kind of love out of God unless you see God nailed to the tree. And you see the way he will be with you when you nail him to a tree. Because I promise you, all of us feel it when we're hateful towards somebody and they love us. All of us have somebody like that in our life. Why were they good to us? And we all think they love us. And we feel and embrace. I I can relate to this in my own life. Man, I was a hell of a kid. And what I mean was there's a whole lot of hell inside of me. I was full of anger and hatred and bitterness and vitriol. I was a drug addict from the age of 11 till around 22. I overdosed on drugs when I was 12 years old at the Christmas dance. The school Christmas dance. Junior high. Junior high. I overdosed. And I died. And they strapped me down to a hospital bed. And they gave my dad a beeper, a buzzer. And they didn't really want to take care of me because they got people who had problems that they didn't inflict on themselves. So they, they told my dad, we're not staying in here, but your son has taken so many drugs, what's going to happen tonight is he's going to flatline over and over and over and over again. He's going to flatline all night. And we ain't got the time or the manpower to sit in here with you while it happens. So here's a buzzer. Every time you hear the flat line go off, you ring the buzzer and we come back in with the crash cart. And we will crash him back to life. So my dad sat in there all night hitting that buzzer. Hitting that buzzer. Now you'd think when I'd wake up that I'd be remorseful. You'd think that when I woke up, I would tell him I loved him. And that I was sorry. You'd think that I would feel something, man. But I was so full of anger and hatred and vitriol and pain. And I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to process it. And I tell you what, all of that anger, all of that hatred, all of that pain came out of me onto my dad. And when I woke up that morning after he sat up all night, buzzing people in to crash me back to life. You know what I looked over and said to him? Forgive my language, but we're all adults. I said, what the hell is your problem? What are you crying for? And I called him a very not nice name. But I don't want to disrespect my father anymore. 
He never imputed my sin to me. He never held it against me. He loved me. He embraced me. And it didn't get better. I was 12. I had nine more years of heavy drug usage and heavy hatred coming out of me towards him. It got so bad that the people in the neighborhood would call my parents and want them to come meet them in the Walmart parking lot. Twice a week they would come to the Walmart parking lot and they would berate my dad. My poor dad, when he would go into sporting events to sit in the stands to watch my brothers and sisters play games, the stands would part because nobody wanted to sit by him because of me. And you know what they would tell my dad? you got to use tough love. you got to kick that kid out. He doesn't get it. you got to get rid of him. And then maybe he'll get it. Well, listen, my dad's father was a Marine. And he was dropped in the ocean in the South Pacific in World War II. And so my dad's a rough kind of guy. And he grew up in a rough kind of scenario. You guys that come from a generation greater than mine, you guys know what I'm talking about. People were tough then. People were tough. And so that made sense to my dad, maybe. The tough kind of love, tough love, that kind of thought, maybe so. Maybe I should consider what they're saying. But you know, one thing about my dad is he always talks to God. <laughs> God had some kids that were acting like me, that were nailing him to a tree. God could identify what my dad was going through because I was nailing my dad to a tree every day. And so my dad talked with God about tough love. And you know what God said to my dad? It's not tough love to kick him out, Larry. It's tough love to sit with him in the darkness. It's easy to get rid of him. It's easy to kick him out. Because then you don't have to see it anymore. Tough love looks like entering into their darkness with them and being there with them while they're in it and embracing them in the midst of it. Loving them even while they're nailing you to a tree. <laughs> you see, I learned something about God from my dad. And I thank God for my dad. And listen, man, I'm sorry to get emotional. I didn't plan on giving a testimony. But man, a year doesn't go by where I don't apologize to my parents and my dad for the hell that I put them through and what I did to them. If there's anybody in here that has a child or a grandchild that looks like they're lost, I promise you they're nowhere near as lost as me. There's nowhere near as lost as I was. And here I am. Here I am. Talk with God. God knows what you're going through because we were all that way. Identify with God in that place. Talk to him about what you're feeling about the child. Talk to him about the hurt that you feel. Talk to him about how did he do it? How did he turn the other? How did he let himself get nailed to the cross and love us? How did he return good for the evil we committed against him? Ask him. Tell him you know that he's father. And as father, you know he can give birth to all the things that came out of him when we nailed him to a tree in us. And he will bring it forth in you. And he will help you to see them for who they are. And he'll help you to know their heart. And you won't confuse them with what they've done. Hmm. God, it makes sense to God that we were doing that, actually. Do you know why? When we were nailing God to a tree and he was embracing us, he understood why. Because he knew he never created us to see darkness. He knew he never created us to see death. He knew that he had never created us to ever even be able to taste death. And now we're in a world filled with death. Yeah. And so he understood how we could be confused, how we could be blind, how we could be lost. Amen. He understood and he was there to comfort us. He came as our support group. I know it's okay, guys. There's a reason they call me mighty God. There's a reason why, because I've come to shine my light in the midst of your great darkness, and I'm going to overcome the death that's tormenting you inside of this body I put on myself. And when you see that death overcome in my body, you'll know my love for you, and you'll know the life I have in myself has whooped the death that's been whooping you. Yes. Right? Yes. And you'll know my love. Yes. That's the righteousness of God towards us, guys. That's the righteousness of God. Listen, guys, it doesn't take a righteous person to punish sinners. No. 
It does not take a righteous person to punish sinners. We got jails all over this unrighteous world punishing sinners today. Any old sinner can punish a sinner. Satan punished sinners. And we've described the righteousness of God as if he's righteous because he punishes sinners. It takes a righteous guy to heal a sinner. It takes a righteous guy to love a sinner. It takes a righteous guy to lay down his life for someone that's trying to take his. It doesn't take a righteous person to punish a sinner. When I was at Mardi Gras and we came to get down, it wasn't the righteousness of God that manifested in me when we would break out in a brawl in the middle of the street. I promise you that. It takes a righteous guy to love someone when they set themselves up as his enemy. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. When we were rejecting God, and I don't know if you realize it, guys, but mankind scapegoated God for our pain. We blamed him. If you look in the garden when he saw himself naked, he thought God uncovered his nakedness. That's why God said, who told you you were naked, Adam? It wasn't me. And so God came to heal, but we scapegoated God for all of our pain, for all of our death, for all of the tribulation. We still do it today. The COVID happened, and how many churches were saying God did it? It's even written in our insurance policies, act of God. How many times do you hear the atheists say, well, I can't believe in God because look at all the hell going on in the world. And so God come into the earth to heal us and we scapegoated him for our pain and we nailed him to a tree, but he didn't scapegoat us for what we did to him. He embraced us instead. (laughs) And the reason he embraced us is so he could take our sin and death into himself and give us the robe of his life. Didn't the the father clothe the prodigal son with his, his best robe? (laughs) we all know John 3 16 we all quote it and so to wrap this up I'll quote a less popular or less known John 3 16 first John 3 16 since we started with God demonstrating his love by Christ dying for us we all know John 3 16 but very few will quote first John 3 16 and this is what first John 3 16 says Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us. I'm going to say it again. Hereby perceive we the love of God because God laid down His life for us. And you might think, how could God taste death? He can't die. Well, you know what God did? He put on our skin suit that was perishable. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh so he could taste our death for us. So he put on a body that had the ability to die. And he took all of our sin and our death into his body. And that's how he tasted our death. And that's how he died. But he can't be held by death because he's eternal and he's immortal. And he stood up out of the grave and out of the death because he can't be held by death. (laughs) That's when you start to know God. You start realizing God's your David. And that he slew your Goliath, the giant of death. Right? And that he's your advocate. He's your friend. That's really testing it, right? Well, this guy says he loved me. Let's test it. I'll nail him to a tree. Let's see how much he loves me then. I don't know. Did God pass the test? It sure looks like it to me. I mean, he turned the other cheek, didn't he? He loved us when we nailed him to the cross. He prayed for us when we despitefully used him. He blessed us when we cursed him. When we stripped him naked, he said, hold on, I'll be back. I'm going to go into heaven and get the, my cloak. And I'm going to come back and clothe you with that. Yeah. He's coming to clothe upon us with his immortality on the last day. <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount, man, is Jesus describing how God will be with sinners. God will be righteous towards sinners. It takes a righteous guy to love their enemies. The only one who can do that is God. And he did it. He spoke about it, and then he demonstrated it. And if we seek his righteousness towards us, we're going to inherit the kingdom. Right? Forget about your righteousness. It says filthy rags. Forget about your human ability. It says filthy rags. Think about God's ability to father his life in you free from your works. Think about his ability to love. Think about his ability to turn the other cheek. Think about his ability to pray for those who despitefully use him. Think about his ability to bless those who curse him. 
Let your mind be filled with that. And you'll find the Sermon on the Mount full of grace for you, full of strength for you, full of God for you, full of the bread of life for you. Thank you, Father, for making your heart bare in our midst. Thank you, Father, that you've taken all of our sin into yourself, that you've taken our griefs and our sorrows into yourself. I just thank you, Father, that if there's anything, any weakness in anybody's life here today, that, uh, man, they get a revelation in their heart that you're with them and that you've absorbed whatever weakness or sickness they have in their body into yourself and that you've consumed it with the light of your life. I just thank you, Father, for giving us beauty for ashes. I thank you, Father, that, that you remove any of the ashes from any of our lives, the deadness that tries to manifest in any of our lives, that you've removed it far from us. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Amen. Amen. Glory to God. You guys are awesome. Thank you for letting me preach for so long. You guys are a real blessing. <laughs> They're shocked. And, and, and you know what? They, uh, there must be a God. <laughs> there must be a God for this kid to be like this now. And my friends, too. Like, my friends, like, you know, Greg? Greg is a preacher? What? What? <laughs> There's got to be a God. It's the only answer. It's the only, that's the only answer, right? I mean, it's the only answer. I did not embellish. I tamed it back a little bit. I was a problem. I was a problem. Thank you, guys.